Oh, Cliff, we're not going to do that thing again where we all Hey, have everybody, to... this hmm. is Cliff. Yeah, we're doing it. This is Megan. This is Nathan. And welcome to <laughs> Pulling Threads. I feel like it's Sesame Street. <laughs> Huge welcome to everyone on our first official Pulling Threads episode. Last week we had, welcome we had back a little all teaser. Five of you. Six, six. My mom's listening too. <laughs> oh, okay. We picked up a listener. Hi, mom. So first off, let us tell you again what Pulling Threads is about. We have this metaphor. We have this idea that there's this sweater we wear that's made up of our beliefs and our values and everything we get growing up. And at some point, some of us look at some of those threads and we think, uh, I, I'm not sure about that one. And we start pulling at those threads. And sometimes you can pull enough thread that the entire sweater falls apart. This is a podcast about that and about conversations with people who have gone through that process before. Does that sum it up, guys? Is that? Yeah. 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 And we're, we're hoping that through those stories that we hear, we can all kind of connect with different threads and see that maybe we're not alone out there and other people have experienced some of the same things maybe even in different ways but those things can connect us i'm pretty curious about why uh, we you know there's the what thread are you pulling but why did you start pulling that thread i know for me i my my sweater began to suffocate me maybe a little itchy but mostly just suffocating mine just seemed out of fashion out of date Oh, I like that. I like it. I'm going to have to think about mine. (laughs) We wanted to start this podcast with our personal stories first. We are going to talk to other people. We're going to hear other people's stories outside of the three of us. That would be a really short podcast series if we were only doing our journeys. But (laughs) we did want to lay a foundation and talk about our own journeys so the listeners could get to know us and understand our journeys. And Megan's already said this, but the hope is that you can connect to something in someone's story and then it can, you know, give you some, I don't know, at, at a minimum, help you feel not alone going through, yeah, right. you know, a time of transition or a time of doubt, whatever, whatever the case is. There's probably different outcomes for everyone when you go through this process. Uh, and so for sure, I, I think it's good just to hear a variety of stories and people's experiences with their faith and with their their sweaters. But today we're going to start with Cliff's story because honestly, this podcast wouldn't exist without Cliff going through his own experience of pulling threads. And this whole idea came from his journey. Like this podcast, I can trace back to one specific moment and it was because uh, Cliff sent a text. I'm, I'm going to read this text that you sent on July 4th, Independence Day 2019. Correct? That's right. Yeah. It says this, Nate and Lindsay... And in parentheses, a.k.a. friends. Thank you for that affirmation. You're welcome. I love you. Also, that's a very formal, very formal way to start a text. Um, That's how I roll, Nate. I I know. I know. I love you. (laughs) I can think of no better day, Independence Day, a day of bombs and freedom to summon up the courage to share this bomb with you. I see what you did there. I, your friend, am gay. After 39 years of carrying the weight of shame, I'm ready to tell my story. I'll be coming out on Facebook in a few days, and I will explain in that message why I'm choosing Facebook to make this public, along with the rest of my story. I love you guys, and if I had to guess, I know you love me. 
kind of hedging your bets there, right? Just in case we didn't still love you. I truly yeah. value your friendship, though this might, for whatever reason, put present a weird dynamic in our relationship. I know based on past experiences and talks with you that I most likely will have your support. I love you guys. Your friend, Cliff. Again, with the formalities in the text. <laughs> it was a very formal moment. It was a it was me. a huge moment. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was accurate calling it a bomb. So when we got that text, Lindsay and I were we were in upstate New York at this campground with our kids and Lindsay being Nate's wife. Lindsay being to my the wife. listener. Correct. And his kids being his kids. <laughs> also correct. Um, <laughs> yeah, when we got that text, I felt nothing but excitement for you. Honestly, it was just like I I'd never guessed that. I'd never thought that because we'd been friends for a long time at that point since 2006, 2007. You were at our house a lot. Like yeah. we hung out a lot. It took me by surprise, but I was just excited. I was excited well, for you. Well, not only was I in your life and we were good friends and I was at your house a lot, but we would have really in-depth conversations about religion and politics and homosexuality was brought up, you know, often. But the funny part of our story is that you would often defend um, the gay community and gay rights, gay marriage, and things of that nature, the more progressive views. And I was on the other side speaking out against gay rights and gay marriage and very much uh, with the mindset that homosexuality is immoral. That probably, um, I did a good job because I would use that to hide who I was, that kind of conservative Christian rhetoric, because that was just one of the walls that I put up to to hide who I was. Yeah, it pissed me off, man. Oh, <laughs> I know. You got, you got pretty oh, heated. You, yeah, <laughs> you used to really, really twist that knife in there. And yeah, your conservative rhetoric got under my skin. Related to this issue specifically, because this was a this was a hot button for me. It was a, it was something I felt very strongly about. Megan, when you got the text, what did you think? I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, still waiting on that text, Cliff. Oh, that's right. Thanks a lot. That's right. Uh, to the listener, no. uh, Megan and my uh, relationship, <laughs> friendship has evolved. Um, yes. You know, since I sent that. We were text. acquaintances. Yeah, we weren't quite. Uh, um, text uh, official, <laughs> Facebook official, yeah. text official. You know, a few days after sending that text, I posted on Facebook, and Megan, because she is hiding under a rock somewhere, didn't even <laughs> see the post on Facebook. <laughs> and Megan, it's my understanding that you didn't find out I was yeah. gay until like a year after everybody else did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, it was a few months ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's maybe ridiculous. Year and I was like, maybe. wait, what? What about all your conversations you had with him? And he's like, I know. Yeah, so I, I broke the news to Megan. We were, we were talking yeah. on the phone. And she was like, wait, what? And I just assumed she knew. That day was the, the reason it started this conversation with the three of us and then eventually this podcast is because of what we've already said. That I was surprised. I was excited for you, but totally surprised because of all of our past conversations about your faith and your beliefs and your uh, very strong feelings on myriad of issues, but especially homosexuality. That seemed to be one that were our most heated debates. And so I, I saw it. At, I'd, I'd kind of gone through my own whatever I went through, pulling threads years earlier, and I could kind of see that in you where now that you were living your truth 
you yeah. were a little more free to explore what you actually believed. Is that accurate? Oh, oh yeah. Once I came out and had no reason to hide, then all the walls that I had built up to hide could come crumbling down. It's still a work in progress and whatnot, but I definitely was able then to take a more honest and genuine look at all of these threads and, and, and see them for what they were. And, you know, picking at them and just pulling, you know, it was just kind mm-hmm. of one thread after the other. Why don't we go back to kind of the beginning of this young Cliff and his sweater and tell us a little bit about your background, about your sweater that you had and kind of maybe even like how you hid your sweat, you know, yeah. all those little yeah. details of your sweater. Well, for sure. So um, I was born in New Jersey actually, and I still have a lot of family up there. Um, my dad was in the Air Force, so we actually ended up moving to Oklahoma when I wasn't even one years old, I think. I was just a baby. And um, shortly after that, my dad and mom got a divorce. Um, I had uh, two older brothers, uh, so it was the three boys. And not long after they got a divorce, my dad married my stepmom, and in that, I uh, gained four sisters. So if you think of like the Brady Bunch, that's kind of like how it was with uh, three boys except the fourth sister. Um, in order, that was Mark, Krista, Stephen, Melissa, Jessica, Cliff, and Amanda, with Amanda being a year younger than me, and, and she was just a baby at the time. When I think back, I can definitely say that my parents did a good job, uh, my parents meaning my dad and stepmom. I mean, they provided food, they provided shelter, clothing. We we were definitely poor. We were on the other side of the tracks, as we say, in, in Altus, Oklahoma. But what was missing, and I think all of my siblings would agree with this to some extent, was kind of the emotional love element. Like, my parents didn't really know how to to take care of us emotionally. And, and it's easy to see now that that's because they were not taking care of each other emotionally. They were pretty immature, uh, not the best marriage, um, a lot of dysfunction even between my biological mom, who still lived in the, the town that I grew up in, Altus, um, until she moved uh, back east. Um, just a bad relationship among the adults, and that made its way to the kids, and we didn't always get along with each other at all. We, we get along really well now, but it was, it was just very dysfunctional growing up. When did you realize that maybe you were gay, or how did that yeah. play into your situation at home? Right. Well, I have always known that I was gay, um, and I think some people find that hard to believe. Um, I, am, I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was born gay. I could I would say this. I'm just as convinced that I was born gay as a straight person may be convinced that they were born straight. Um, I just know it with just with an as part of my identity. F- from like four or five years old, I know I was I, I know I was attracted to men on some level, and uh, he may be listening to this, so I'm we'll see. I, I know for sure that I had a, a crush on my elementary school PE teacher uh, in first <laughs> grade. Uh, sorry if you're listening to this. I hope it's not awkward. <laughs> There's a chance he might be because we're friends on Facebook. But yeah, I've always known. I've always known. And, and I, it may not have always been. I, I certainly always knew I was different. And I knew I was looking at men in a different way than what I was picking up from even my siblings and society. 
what I was supposed to be. And I knew I was not looking at women the way that I was supposed to be. And there was also, uh, you know, I was kind of flamboyant as a, a, a kid. Um, I would learn the cheerleading routines. Uh, this was an elementary school. I, I would, um, I'm slightly embarrassed to say this, but uh, I, I knew all the Paul Abdul choreography. I mean, there were so many signs. Because it was good. <laughs> <laughs> there were so I mean, many just, signs. Just for, I don't know. Uh, can we can we see some of those right now? Uh, yeah, yeah, let me do that. <laughs> okay. Straight up now, Tim. And then you you do it, and for the listener, we'll describe what you're doing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that'll be good. Well, the funny thing is, fast forwarding after I did come out at the age of 39 to my siblings, yeah. and they all acted shocked. I was like, how how could you guys not have even guessed? <laughs> and I don't know. I think I, I think there was probably a period of time back then that people thought I may have been gay. I was certainly called faggot quite a bit. Uh, growing up and and accused of being gay and, and just some you know uh, other derogatory things but as I got older and I and I started seeing these dots that um, and I started being able to connect the dots realizing that okay I know I'm gay I know what I'm feeling I know what I'm thinking I know that who I am is not right or problematic I know that that society and the church around me is telling me that who I am is wrong. And because of that, uh, well, a couple things. Number one, I began to realize I needed to change the way that I was acting because people could see how I was acting and link it to being gay. I didn't have the freedom to be me, and I didn't have the freedom to even discuss it. And as a result, right. and this is what happens a lot uh, with, with children, is you end up getting forced into a closet. Um, I can now see that that closet is a closet of self-hatred and shame and just complete isolation. We talk about connecting the dots. So from the secrecy of my own uh, closet of shame, um, I witnessed um, images on the TV of the AIDS epidemic and um, the hateful and um, just lack of compassion rhetoric that was... Uh, thrown at the gay community. Um, you see people picketing funerals of uh, those AIDS victims who are usually um, homosexuals and um, just disgusting signs um, about all gays are going to hell and and God hates fags and uh, God created um, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, you know, things like that. And, um, and then I, I distinctly remember, um, you know, going to mass and hearing the priest read the scripture about how homosexuality is abominable. And, and in the Bible, it says that, you know, homosexuals should be put to death. And hearing the priest make the link between that scripture and those who are dying of AIDS. And so I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm watching this as a kid and, and realizing my connection to it. I actually had an uncle, uh, Uncle David, who um, I, I never knew him, but he was gay and he died of AIDS uh, in, the, in the mid to late 80s. And um, remember visiting my mom one time where, you know, that, that topic... Um, was brought up and she just kind of, without giving it much thought, she just said that um, your uncle would kick any of y'all boys' asses if he found out that you were gay. And even just some things that my dad would would say, obviously they both said it without knowing that, you know, I was gay, but um, yeah. And, and again, not knowing 
what to do about it. I, I, I had nobody to talk to about it. Just kind of putting all that weight on on my tiny shoulders. You know that would that would continue. Uh, I re- even into high school. You know when um, Matthew Shepard was murdered and that made the news. I was a junior in high school and you know just again continuing to to realize my connection. Uh, to that and, and seeing all the hate that surrounded even that issue, even in the late 90s. As I went into my middle school years, it was just very, um, I was very isolated. I, I, I didn't have really any friends by the time I got to middle school. I, I was had typical uh, brother-sister relationship with my sibling, but I certainly uh, couldn't tell them. And just a lot of tears. I I can still remember laying in bed many nights um, just with this realization, just thinking through it, the wheels constantly going that realizing that there's something wrong with me and I didn't know how to fix it. And um, yeah, it's a very lonely place to be. As a result, uh, again, just I, I didn't see any pathway out of it. And luckily, eventually, as I approached junior high, my eighth and ninth grade years, I found music and and my faith to be um, good. Uh, They they gave me a sense of direction and purpose that I hadn't seen before. So still very much closeted, still very much um, living um, this kind of secret life in a closet but Did you have anyone you could you could talk to about this, or were you one hundred percent on an island? It was there was no one. I did not tell my first. Uh, the first person who I told I was gay was a friend in college in two thousand and two. So I did not tell anybody about this. It was not an option in the town that I grew up in, which was a very conservative uh, Southern evangelical community, uh, Christian community. You guys remember the '90s? It was it, homosexuality was sin. It was abominable. It was disgusting. It was um, evil. As a result, you don't really. I didn't feel like I could talk about it. I didn't. There were others that I guess could, you know. Uh, but in my world, and with the, I I did not have that option. At least I didn't feel like I did have that option. Did you ever go through a period where you were trying to, like, I guess, get rid of it? You know what I mean? Like, praying prayers of, like, please don't let... Because I have had friends that have told me they've kind of experienced that. Well, the short answer to that, Megan, is I did that for 39 years, if I'm being honest. So, first of all, I'll, I'll say this. Musically, music became a huge thing in my life. I... um. I enjoyed music as a kid. I, you know, I, I sang in elementary school, usually would get like a little solo. So I kind of knew that I had this connection with music and however, going into middle school in an attempt to hide, I, I, I had it understood in my head that I could not be in choir because people would know I was gay. So I, I kind of backed off of music with the hopes, just another way to hide. But going into my eighth grade year, something encouraged me to, enroll in the uh, men's choir at the junior high, uh, my eighth grade year. And that ended up changing my life. I I knew even that year that what I was going to do for the rest of my life was teach choir. So that was kind of a a life-changing kind of saving thing because it gave me some direction. At some point, my dad bought me a keyboard. I guess he he saw something in me that 
uh, figured I would connect to it. And I practiced that thing nonstop. I didn't have friends. I didn't have relationships. So um, I, I spent a lot of time uh, practicing on the keyboard and eventually would begin playing. You know, I'll talk about my faith and church and all that in a second. But yeah, uh, began to play for church services. So and eventually would continue on in choir in high school and foster relationships through in, in that way and, and would eventually major in music education in college. So the music aspect definitely helped uh, give me a sense of purpose and direction, whereas otherwise I would have just been, I, I don't know what would have happened had I not found music. And um, and my faith uh, also gave me a sense of direction. It's, it's weird to think now, but I do think it was important and it served a purpose. I grew up in the Catholic faith, especially the boys and my dad. We went to church pretty much every Sunday to Catholic Mass. And this was at a on base at the Air Force Base Chapel. And I was an altar boy. I went to Sunday school. We we called it CCD, so sometimes we would go Wednesday nights to to CCD to, you know, and then Sunday school. And I would, I had a lot of questions. I, I, I've always been kind of confrontational and, um, I did not understand why do we have to confess our sins to a priest? What's, what's the point of Jesus if we have to confess our sins to a priest? Um, why, why are we saying that Mary was sinless and why are we saying that she was a virgin? Like I, I was pretty, um, I asked a lot of questions. Um, I, I, I guess I've always had that um, inside of me. The interesting thing though, um, about this chapel is you had Catholic masses and then right afterwards you had Protestant services. And interesting. Yeah. There, (laughs) there was a period of time and, you know, kind of getting into high school where I would, I was playing piano for the, the Catholic masses. Um, and there were times where I would skip Catholic Sunday school and stay for, Protestant services, I would go up and and just watch them from the balcony. And it was the first time I was kind of exposed to a new way of looking at faith because I was hearing different kinds of things. I was hearing more of a clear presentation of like the gospel and the salvation Mm -hmm. experience and, and whatnot. What all would fall into that whatnot category? The main, the main thing I take away from Catholicism is there are a series of sacraments, in other words, a series of things that you have to do in order to gain salvation. And when I began attending Protestant services, that was not what was being taught. Um, What I learned from the, the Protestant services is it has nothing to do with what you're doing, and it has everything to do with your faith. And so that's why I say it was it was more of a clear presentation of the gospel it was it was very simple you're born you're sinful jesus is perfect he died for you have faith in him and you're saved the catholic church it it, it was not as simple um it was kind of there was just a lot of steps in there um that you had to climb in order to achieve salvation now that's certainly not to say that the catholic church is alone in that it would take me years uh, before I would realize that pretty much every denomination, regardless of their theology, um, has an element to where um, they feel like they have to do better and be better in order to be good enough. And um, 
gosh, and, and that just makes so much sense based on um, how those in the church are raised to to think about themselves that that they're gosh that they're horrible that they're sinful that they were born with sin and um, they're the worst and so no wonder we um, kind of feel like we have to to uh, be good enough. I don't know. So you were already pulling on your original sweater <laughs> early on, right? Oh yeah, for sure. The, the funny thing about it, though, is um, when I was a, a freshman, 16 years old, um, I attended a, there, there was a Catholic youth uh, group thing that came and, and did, uh, they spoke at it, or they presented at a Catholic youth rally. And they didn't use the words saved or anything like that, but there was something about their presentation that when I watched it, there was definitely something that happened inside of me that there, like it clicked with me. There was like this change in me. Suddenly there's this recognition of God and this kind of communication with him that I had never really experienced uh, like that before. We didn't call it saved. We didn't call it a salvation experience. I would kind of more label it that later on, but there was definitely something that made me just reevaluate the way that I that I acted, the way that I talked, the way that I um, just my faith in general. And and after that, I began to take my faith very seriously. I began to take Bible study, reading the Bible, um, very seriously. And and just you know how I treated others, how I talked uh, to others. I even uh, I saw the video footage and the pictures, but. I took it very seriously. I wore a big wooden cross around <laughs> to school. <laughs> I wore it every day. Um, I have video footage of singing at a concert, and there I am wearing, this is my ninth grade year, wearing a big wooden cross. Like, how big are we talking about? Oh, no, here? no, Megan, it was, it was, it was, like, yeah. I think some just thought I was on my way to priesthood. <laughs> okay, um, okay. <laughs> looking back... I, I I look at that whole faith experience as that was a wall that I was building to hide who I who I was. If I could just prove to people that I was this this Christian, Jesus loving, um, you know, kid, teenager, then maybe they would not see that I was gay. That's just kind of the way that I had it worked out in my head. As I made my way into high school, again, pretty much friendless. I, I was still very isolated. I had gotten a little bit more social, but uh, nothing to to where I had any good friends. But that would change in 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 high school. Um, I would start hanging out with friends who were in different youth groups at like different churches, like at the Presbyterian Church, and then especially in our First Baptist Church, and I would start hanging out with them and, and at youth groups and Bible studies and things like that, and I began to adopt a more um, evangelical faith. And at that point, I really began to, especially the Bible, I just took it all a lot more seriously. And I had a couple of mentors. These were moms of some good friends of mine, and they actually taught me how to study the Bible, you know, um, how to how to look into the Hebrew, how to look into the Greek, how to cross-reference, how to do all, how to truly study the Bible as more in, in a more academic way and not just a, a devotional way. I became very legalistic. I became very dogmatic. I would get into 
this is really hard to talk about, but uh, just because it's uncomfortable because it's just ridiculous. But in high school, I had set up a meeting between me and another classmate who was Church of Christ and his um, youth pastor. And of course, the whole topic of conversation was baptism. And at that point, I had evolved in my faith that I understood baptism to be a symbol of something that happens inside of you, a symbolic, um, you know, death and resurrection. It was a symbol of what was supposed to happen inside, whereas my friend who was Church of Christ insisted that, no, the, the baptism itself is the salvation. And if you, if that's not why you're getting baptized, then then you're not truly saved. It, it, was, it doesn't work. Oh, yeah. So, and and I would get into arguments. Like, I was really just, and I think I showed up with a whole binder of research and <laughs> typed notes, and, and I had all kinds of books. I can remember spending hours at my church. We had all these tables uh-huh. in our annex, and, and I had just tons of books that I had checked out from the library, and I had them, I was like, gung-ho i was like really into this well at least you were like vocal and actually like setting up meetings to have dialogue (laughs) i was just probably like silently judging people (laughs) being like worried for their souls but not doing anything (laughs) yeah and i don't i don't think you should like i you know you say it's hard to talk about now if we had like a true confessions of former evangelicals you know the time i mean we've all we've all picked just the most ridiculous fights and been so passionate and so convinced that we were 100 percent right i think all of us have just you know we kind of leaped from soapbox to soapbox for a while at some point and add add teenage years on top of that complete drama like if if i didn't have (laughs) drama then i i didn't feel like i was existing but to be honest you know i was I'm just very confrontational and I come by it honestly. My my mom and my dad and even my stepmom could be very confrontational. My brother Steven is confrontational. Um I think the bigger issue that I have with it now is it's very clear to see now that what I was really doing is defending the wall that I was hiding behind. Not only am I a Christian, everybody, but look how hard I'm defending it, you know? And first of all, yeah. looking back, that should have been a clue to people that they're, why is he defending this so much? And, um, but I didn't, it it was just where I was. I was defending the wall of faith that I was hiding behind and I would do everything I could to just make sure that that wall was, was sturdy, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. And it's not completely abnormal to find someone in the evangelical community. And like Megan said, especially during those teenage years who, you know, wholeheartedly will argue, uh, you know, different points of theology. So that, that makes sense. Yeah. I had many friends who were into apologetics. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> it, it got to the point I was in charge of all of the music for all of the, the services that took place <laughs> at the chapel. I was playing piano. I was uh, planning all the music and whatnot, but once the Catholic priest caught wind that I had kind of changed into more of a Southern evangelical Baptist type faith, he told me that I could not take communion anymore. I could lead worship and I could plan Whoa. everything and things like that, but I was no longer permitted to take the communion. So, um, which was drama. All of this time, again, though, I, I'm gay and I knew I was gay, and but it was definitely just this inner struggle that just continued uh, within me. And it intensified 
in my teenage years, I mean, that's just kind of what happens. And that would continue. It's still a lot of tears uh, just sitting on my bedroom floor, just weeping and crying and, and, and again, trying to pray the gay away. Yeah, that would continue on into college. Went to college nearby uh, for a music education degree. Was very involved in the Baptist Student Union. That's what we called it at the time. And I mean, just continued on that journey. Um, though in college, I did find two other walls that I could hide behind, and that was politics. So I, well, I guess three, really. One of them being politics. I was very outspoken with my conservative Republican values. I began to enjoy college football, which to me, it wasn't enough to just enjoy college football, but I needed everybody to know that I enjoyed college football because in yeah, my head... Did. Yeah. yeah, you did. Oh. Yeah, in my in my head, I'm like, well, nobody's gonna believe that somebody who enjoys college football so much is gay. I mean, that's just kind of the way that my mind was always working. And I also um, picked up a very unhealthy habit in college with my work ethic. And looking back, I mean, that's where it all started, and that would be something that would kind of dominate. Once I began my career, I would often put work. I work very hard. And I would put it ahead of everything else, including friendships and relationships. It was something that I could use, another wall that I had that I could hide behind. And I've, I've been on the other side of that that <laughs> wall, uh, especially work-related, where you know there sometimes months would go by and we yeah. would go from hanging out five times a week to no communication at all. Right. So you were good at it. Yeah. Well, and I guess then we'll backtrack a little bit. So once, you know, I, I moved to Texas in 2003 to begin my teaching career. Eventually, Nathan started teaching in the district um, at the school I was teaching in 2006. And it took a year, but we, we started friendship not too long after that. And once we began our friendship, it was natural to, to talk, uh, at least even though we had differing opinions, Something about our friendship made it okay to get into heated discussions about politics and religion and and things like that. Like we were always able to survive. Like it didn't strain our relationship at all. But yeah, we would talk about abortion, homosexuality. We we would get into some heated conversations about the Iraq War. So I was pulling my own threads at the time, right? And I was kind of transforming, leaving my own faith figuring out what I believed. And so those uh, those debates and when we would spar like that, it helped me kind of define and understand where I was now. And so, man, you were stubborn to argue against back then. I can remember um, Nate and I would get into these conversations. And, you know, I, I think our, our friendship kind of solidified a little bit more during those times, but we found ourselves uh, ourselves one time talking about homosexuality. And the Bible, and me hiding, uh, still hiding behind these walls, and I was very outspoken, and and I talked about Paul, what Paul said about homosexuality that it was immoral, and and Nate chimed in with, um, yeah, but Paul didn't know about orientation. How could Paul have, you know, people didn't understand sexual orientation at the time, and I, Nate, I still remember just looking dead set in your eyes and saying, well, I I don't care about sexual orientation. And <laughs> like, Oof. just very, um, it, to me, it didn't mean anything. I knew what my sexual orientation was and that, that was besides the point. So you, you Paul knew says it's immoral. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you knew 
you knew your orientation yeah. and you knew it was a sin. So you were, you were, I mean, you, I, I was you said this already, the wall. but you were hating yourself. Yeah. You were, oh, it was self-hatred. Sure. I mean, you were, yeah, you, you were, I mean, I can't, I can't even wrap my mind around what you've been through. I think what that does is it, it helps people understand, especially people who are in your life now, friends with you, especially and particularly if they're friends with you on Facebook and they see how outspoken you are about this particular issue. Um, I'll try to not say the word particular again for the next 10 minutes, but, but I think it, it really helps to understand where you're coming from and to hear the pain and how isolated you were. And it's your desire to not have any other kid go through that is the reason you're so outspoken and pointing that out. Uh, to people and calling calling out the church on this outdated and hateful teaching. And, and you hit the nail on the head. Like if this just impacted me, if this was a, a decision that I had made, um, and I was receiving you know negative energy or judgment for it, that'd be one thing. But I have the coping skills now that I'm free and as an adult that I can recognize hatred for what it is. But that is not the way that children and teenagers and many adults see the world. I mean, um, so my story though, there are some nuanced factors, variables about my story that are unique to me. The fact of the matter is millions of children and teenagers and adults are, are suffering through this and in, in many ways, far more, um, past what I have struggled. There were times, um, especially in, in, in high school and college where I would have these thoughts of suicide, um, where I would think that, and usually it was just after just this session of crying, either in the shower or kneeling on my bedroom floor, just, you know, when, when it just all seemed too much. And I really didn't see any way out of it. I had had this plan that even though I knew I was gay, I was going to overcome it. I was going to meet, um, a woman in college, we were going to get married, we were going to have kids and, and, and live a perfect life. And the older I would get through college, the more I would understand that that's not as easy as I, as I would hope that it would be. And it's because I was denying a part of who I was, who I was created to be. And whereas I just would have thoughts of suicide, the, the, the heartbreaking fact is that, that we have kids and teenagers especially, and even some adults who attempt suicide because of this, and many are successful. It's a disgusting teaching. It's a hateful teaching. And so, yeah, anything I can, it, I think people probably maybe think I'm too outspoken about it. And perhaps that's just the, the just because I'm answering to the fact that I was silent about it for so long. And well, not just silent, but also outspoken against it against homosexuality, and, and perhaps there's a part of me that's overcompensating. Earlier, Nathan was talking about when y'all were debating, he was pulling his threads, and so he was really forming his ideas through those debates. And yet, while he was doing that, he was, the ripple effect of that was creating a safe space for you later to be able to do that. And now you are, you know, maybe being really vocal um, on Facebook and things like that. And there might be people that attack or argue, but you are also creating those safe spaces for other people to begin pulling threads. And I think that's, that's kind of cool how it can be a ripple effect. Right. Right. 
And, yeah. and I'll be honest here, uh, Cliff and I have had conversations, you know, outside of this podcast about that. And I worry about how outspoken he is. Honestly, I could give a shit what people think about uh, what he's saying. I don't care about yeah. that. I just worry about him and his mental health. Yeah. And, and I also think that I want him to remember where he was when we were having those conversations and see, you know, and know that people can change and people can grow. And exactly what Megan just said, that through those through those debates and through those arguments, you know, those people could could come around and they could be having their own their own mm-hmm. doubts right now. And because you're causing them, those doubts are uncomfortable because it mm-hmm. challenges who how they see the world. It challenges who, you know, who they think they are and what their identity. And so that's a scary thing. And so when you do have a loose thread in there, it, it's scary to think about what happens if I mm-hmm. what happens if I pull this one thread? What happens it's connected to the rest of the threats? What happens then? Well, and and I appreciate you worrying about my mental state. And of course, there's always a chance that perhaps I'm not as mentally sound as I should be. I don't know. But I <laughs> No, I no, I think I think you just said it. I think you just said it. I think it's I think your guilt for not speaking up is driving you to be so outspoken now. You're compensating for that the same way you used to scream boomer sooner every time Oklahoma got a first down so that we wouldn't think you were gay. And I I want you to be free from that guilt. Like, that's not on you. And I agree. I agree. Um, To some extent, I agree. I'll, 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 I'll give that. You've been plucking at these threads. What was the first thread that you... Do you have a... Yeah. Okay, so... Wow. Okay. Honestly, and this is going to seem like a very cheap and easy answer, but I I swear it's the truth. And that is when Trump entered the political arena. And and at this point, it was during the primaries, the Republican primaries. I, I had voted Republican my entire adult life. And here we are in the Republican primaries. And what you guys, you lived through it. We we all lived through it. The speeches, the hatred. And I was just shocked that I didn't think that he would win the primary. So I, and I remember he, he started speaking on abortion and it was very clear to me what was happening. And it was clear just because of the conversations I was having with people at church. I knew that this was a game I knew that in order for him to win, because of the potty mouth and, and the, the stupid locker room talk and just the hatred and whatnot, I, I knew he needed something to win over the the evangelical vote in, in our recent history that it, abortion has been the one issue that would do that. That is probably when I began picking on that particular thread because my entire adult life, that was a wall that I was hiding behind, my conservative Republican values. And I started to see like, well, this is not even worth hiding behind anymore. I could just see it unfold. It was just kind of disgusting. How, how do you guys not see that this is complete hypocrisy? You are hiding behind and championing conservative Christian values. And I don't care what this guy's stance on abortion is. That is not the value system that this guy is reflecting in that you guys have been championing all this time. So and certainly when he won the primary and then won the election, I, I, I just became very hard hearted and especially um, disenchanted with the church's role um, in, in electing him which then began to turn another thread. I found it harder and harder with every passing 
uh, Sunday to pray with with these people and even amongst myself, you know, to myself, I I, I began to see my relationship with God. Uh, it 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 began to be a little hardened. Uh, none of it just the the wall just seemed to have all these cracks in it. So that was one thing. I think that that has proven a a thread that many people have have pulled on. The other is um, surprisingly when I uh, for the first time in my adult life I got a dog, <laughs> Sky. And, um, and it was interesting. I wasn't expecting this, but for the first time in my life, number one, I had somebody else living in the house that, that could breathe and eat and poop. Well, my adult life anyway. And, (laughs) um, and it forced me to care about something in a really real way other than myself. I, I never had to worry about leaving the house or anything like that. So in in some way, that was in a way its own thread because now I have this other thing. I, I know that seems weird. I don't know exactly how to explain this, but I had this creature who was depending on me and I wasn't always able to think about myself at all times and my own schedule and my own. So in a way that that, that kind of proved its own little thread. And then there was... Um, in 2019, in April of 2019, I came home after church one day, turned on the TV, and um, I saw this man being interviewed on like a um, pre-recorded episode of the Rachel Maddow show. And they were talking for about 45 minutes about all kinds of things related to politics and policies, and, 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 and he was brilliant. I think he had served in Afghanistan. He was the a mayor of... South Bend, uh, Indiana, uh, was a Rhodes Scholar, graduated from Harvard, could speak like seven languages. I mean, just the guy was brilliant. It wasn't until the end of the interview that it was even mentioned that he was gay, which shocked me because five years ago or 10 years ago, that would have been the main topic of conversation. Uh, This guy was running for president, Pete Buttigieg, we all know now. And um, I, I was just shocked. Like, again, 10 years ago, that would have been the only topic of discussion. But here they're able to talk about all these policies and the direction that the, the, the nation is going. And he's very eloquent, very smart. So that threw me a little bit. And, and I kind of was very intrigued. And I remember at one point, because uh, Rachel Maddow is also gay. Th- this is before I came out. They were talking to each other about... Um, being in the closet and what that was like. And, and I remember, um, Pete's story was a little bit different than mine because it's like he had suppressed his sexuality his entire life. And it wasn't until his late twenties that he could admit to himself, I think is the way he puts it, that he was gay, which is a a completely foreign concept to me. Uh, I hid that I was gay, but I always knew I was gay. Like it wasn't anything I was suppressing. And um, I thought that was interesting. Um, and at one point, Rachel said to him that it's a lot. Still get a still get a little choked up talking about this, but um, I'm just staring at, at these two gay people having this adult conversation and very mature. And 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 she talked about. How, how much, how difficult it is and how much harder it is to be in the closet than to be out of it. And I remember 
just looking at her saying that and like there's n absolutely no way that that's true i i had been completely convinced um my whole life that 39 years that being in the closet was the easiest decision i did not i could not imagine a world being out of it and certainly i could not imagine that 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 would be easier than being in it. And that was the f the first time that I'd kind of heard that. And, you know, just a little pulling of that, a, a little playing of that thread. Um, I, I still at that point did not, had no intent intentions of coming out. And, but it was just, things were now looking back when we, we talk about Trump, when we talk about politics, when we, talk about Pete Buttigieg and, and, and that interview. And, and I became fascinated with him after that. I would go to the gym and I would watch every single interview. Um, and I was just amazed. And, but yeah, um, so ended out the school year and began summer uh, in 2019. At that point, I was very much just on the, the I, I was not ready to come out yet. I was not thinking that, but I was just very uh, Team Pete. And I had purchased his book on his audio book, um, The Shortest Way Home. I purchased it, purchased it July 2nd and um, took Skye to the dog park and began walking her and listening to it. Whew. Um, and I listened to it throughout the night and I, I didn't sleep. I finished it um, the early morning on July 3rd. That was the first time that I'd asked myself if I was ready to come out. And I was just shocked. I didn't know even how to, to deal with that because it was the first time that I even had those thoughts. And uh, there were a couple things that he said in the book that really, that really compelled me to even ask those questions. The, the first thing is the, this quote that many people have gotten to know um, where he basically is talking to Mike Pence in this quote, and he's saying, if you have a problem with who I am, your quarrel is not with me, it's with my creator. And it was the first time it dawned on me that this didn't have to be, my, my sexual orientation didn't have to be my problem. I had been carrying that weight for 39 years and to appease other people because of how they've been taught to look at it. And all the while knowing that that's how I was created, so that was the first time that I had this thought that I could take this weight and I could hand it to the people who were putting the weight on me. I'm going to put the weight on you. You figure it out. You figure out why I was born gay. You reconcile your faith. Why should I or anybody else have to suffer in, in silence just so that you can feel better about a faith that was taught to you? And I started having that conversation. And, and the other thing that really kind of sealed the deal for me, I think, is when he talked about you only get to live one life. Even though I had been, you don't get to pick and choose. You can't compartmentalize, not at least in a healthy way, because you're not really being your true self to, to, um, those in your life. And just when he said that, I, I, I looked at my life in a, through a different lens, this 39 years of just completely hiding and everywhere from my faith to my love of college football, to my politics, to even the way that I would, um, teach and, and look at my students. It, it dawned on me that what I had been doing, cause I was really good at my career. I was really good at my job. Um, 
just received all kinds of praise from from the the parents in my community, the parents of my students, um, that I, I I put on such great shows and and just really taught their kids well. But what I could realize is that I was creating opportunities for my students and putting a spotlight on them all while getting closer just because of the nature of being a choir director. You, you kind of, you get closer to the families and the spotlight that I was putting on their kids allowed me to continue hiding in that closet in the shadows because I would get closer to the parents I knew that they were wondering, why is this guy still single? Okay, he's 35 now. Why Why is he still single? What's going on here? And I was afraid that they were connecting the dots and figuring out that I was gay. So if I could distract them, if I could just put this great spotlight on their, on their kids, then maybe they won't even think about that. That's just kind of the way that that I had to process things. And I know it seems twisted, and I know, I know it seems weird. And, and, and I know that I'm not the only one that has had to to deal with that, to, to do these types of things. So I guess I began to realize, um, this thread that, you know, you might call the thread of life. Um, we lost my brother, Mark, um, in 2017. Um, he had struggled his, he struggled his whole life, but especially his adult life, he, um, struggled with addiction and was in and out of rehab and died, uh, very unexpectedly. And I remember, when I sent the text to my family, just kind of commenting on that, that if there's anything that I've learned um, by his passing is that, you know, again, we only get one life and, and it just dawned on me that I've kind of been squandering it and, and hiding. So yeah, I, I think that I, I'd been asking myself if, if I'm ready to come out and and then and then I was, all of a sudden I was. So you're talking about, you read the book on the second, you're dealing with this on the third, this is going through your head. So the next day is when you sent that text that we started with to us. So we've, we've gone through, we're, we're full circle now. So what was that day like for you? Huh? Um, you know, it, it's, it's funny to think about that because again, 39 years of, of keeping this in and even, as you mentioned before, uh, this was July 4th. And if you had asked me on July 2nd if I would be coming out, the answer would have been no. Uh, absolutely not. But things began to quickly unfold where I just began to have this kind of shift of of mindset. Yeah, the day of... Well, okay, so the night before, July 3rd, um, I was with some friends at a, a brewery in Arlington. And um, Division Brewing, Brewing I'm going to give a shout out. Anyway, and uh, no, we were there celebrating the 4th of July on the 3rd with fireworks and whatnot. I had Sky with me. She didn't like the fireworks. But by the time that evening came around, I'd already begun asking myself um, if I was ready to come out, you know? I still wasn't sure, and I didn't know if this was just kind of this short-term little feeling, but I do know that I'd never had those feelings before at all. I'd never even thought about the possibility of coming out. Then on July 4th, I was traveling um, with a friend. Um, we were going to her parents' house. They live about 45 minutes away from me uh, to celebrate actually on the 4th of July. We had Sky in the, in the back, and on the way there, I had told her way years ago, I think back in 2000 and, 
in three or 2004, I had told her that I was gay. And um, I, I just kind of, you know, told her that I'm, I'm actually thinking about coming out publicly. And we talked about it. Um, and she was shocked. I needed to have that little conversation with her just because I needed to test it. I needed to get some type of feedback, you know. Of, of course, she was very supportive. And she just listened as I talked. We got to her house. Um, man, I think I was there for about 45 minutes, maybe maybe an hour. Sky, um, we had put her up in a little fenced-in area with, with a dog that they had, and Sky was not getting along with this other dog. Um, and I felt guilty. She was getting all muddy. It had just rained, and there was mud. And I was just beginning to feel just this inner turmoil. And... I, I, I basically grew miserable while I was there. I needed to grab Sky and I needed to go home. The this this feeling of needing to come out was just getting stronger and more intense. wasn't sure what to do about it. Anyway, I grabbed Sky and um, we drove back home. Of course, I'm thinking about this the whole trip. Um, she was muddy. Um, Uh, so, you know, it's funny. I, 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 I never know when, um, I don't know, just talking about this little, <clears throat> anyway, I, I drew a bath for her, put her in the bath, you know, constantly thinking about, again, I'm, I'm experiencing these thoughts and feelings for the first time in my life. I had never felt. And I just remember, you know, I, I, I was washing her. I was cleaning her. I was thinking about it. It was growing more intense. And then at some point, I just kind of look at, there's something about just looking into the eyes of a dog. They're so innocent and playful. And, and I knew one way or the other, this dog loves me and she doesn't, she doesn't care whether I'm gay or straight or whatever. And I just broke down crying. I was just weeping there, giving her a bath. I remember her licking my face and, um, you know, when I think back, there had been many times in my life where I was on my hands and knees crying, uh, because of, because of this, because I was gay years that I would spend just grieving, begging, pleading, praying that God would just this evil thing in me that I hate, that I'd grown to hate because I was taught to hate it, that he would just rip it out of me. And um, th this cry was a little bit different because this was more like I was at peace. It was the first time, it was at that moment that I knew I'm going to do this. I'm ready to do this. And I just kind of let that all out and Got her out of the bath. There was just this peace about me. I sat at the piano, as I do often, as I've done often throughout my years, and sat there and improvised a little bit just to kind of, I don't know, just gain a little bit more peace. I knew that I was about to come out to my, my family. I had made the choice, the, the decision to do it via text messages uh, because I have a large family and I don't want to have to sit there and explain it over and over again. So I crafted, I, I played a little bit on the piano, came, found some peace there. 
um, cuddled up with Sky on the couch, crafted the perfect uh, text that I felt would fully explain, at least temporarily, what I needed to share, send it. Uh, of course, they they replied back with a lot of love and support. Um, my sister, Amanda, who I'm, you know, out of my siblings I'm closest with, it was a big struggle for her. She called me right away crying. And not that she was upset about me being gay or anything like that. Um, she was just kind of, you know, hurt and sad and confused that I had kept it a secret all these years and that I didn't feel like I could uh, talk to her about it. Um, we, we talked through it. And then I got Sky back in the car, took her, to, took her to the park for a walk just to kind of let things out. And I remember sitting on the park bench because at that point, um, just all the love and support that I'd received from my family gave me now the, the encouragement that I needed to be able to reach out to friends like you and, and some other close friends in my life who I knew I wanted them to know before I made the decision to share it publicly on, on Facebook in a few days. So just basically recrafted that text a little bit and, and sent it to some close friends, including you, you and Lindsay. Yeah. So I came out just a few days later and I was just, I, to think that on July 2nd that I had absolutely no plans in coming out to the point where I was feeling physical torture. Um, I couldn't wait any longer to make it public. Uh, I was in pain while waiting to do so. Just think says a lot. And, uh, but my story is not unique to me. And, and, and I think that that's uh, more to the point of my goals for this podcast, in addition to the just the conversation. It's just my story is shared by many other people in, in our towns, in our state, cities, country, the world. I feel the need to do my part to um, have this conversation. Let me just, this is important to me. Okay. After you came out to your family in the text... You yeah. said uh, that you came out to a few close friends. Mm-hmm. I, I just need to know that Lindsay and I were the first <laughs> in that tier. It would just, for me, I need that. <laughs> it doesn't have to be true. Just say we were the first ones. <laughs> um, I... <laughs> At least you got a text. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that is fair. Okay. So, Cliff, back to back to the timeline. Uh, can you walk us through uh, what happened after that, after the fourth Right. I knew I was going to post on Facebook in a few days. After I sent the text, I, I, I knew that I began to just kind of put everything together. And I knew that I needed to have a conversation with um, my church pastor and um, the music minister. Uh, I, again, I was still playing piano for First Baptist Church. I knew that this was going to be an issue. So I texted uh, the music minister and said, Hey, I need to meet with, with you and the pastor right away. And so we set up a time to meet, uh, on Friday morning, which was July 5th, the next day. And I met with them at, um, like nine o'clock in the morning. And I told them that I would be coming out and we had about an hour long conversation. They were supportive. I, I wish that I could have that conversation with them again because it would go a lot different. But basically I just wanted to get this off of me 
and let them know. And I understood I was in agreement. I won't be playing anymore. I was basically told if you uh, commit to being um, celibate, you can continue playing. And the, my only answer to that was um, I don't want any chains. I don't want any weight. I don't want any guidelines or nothing. I just need to be completely free of, of all of this. That's kind of where I was. And they said, you can continue to still worship here, but you just won't be able to play piano. You know, it is what it is. And, um, but here's the, the kicker, I guess. After that, I went to our district's administration building because to carry on a conversation with the assistant, um, superintendent to let her know um, and basically to ask her if I needed to look for another job. Back in 2015 in the town where I live, uh, not teach but live, we had had a teacher who made it known to her students, not by any way that was inappropriate, but her students found out that she had made it known that she was married to a woman. And um, I, th- I think what actually happened is, happened is she got fired, but then she got reassigned because they figured out that being fired was going to be an issue, so she got reassigned. Um, she filed suit against the district. It made its way into the high courts. She ended up winning the case. And Oh, I didn't know any of this. Yes. But I had learned about that uh, going into um, July 5th. And so I was wondering if I needed to look for another job. So at any rate, had this uh, meeting with the assistant superintendent. She was very supportive. She assured me, Cliff, this is not a fireable offense. And um, she's and she said she needed to have a couple of other conversations. The main issue was that I was going to be coming out on Facebook, social media. I assured her I didn't have any current students who were friends, but I did have current um, parents of students who were friends. And I had former students and former parents who were friends, but not current. But she still wanted to make sure that there was nothing that she was missing, that this could be an issue. And we also agreed that we needed to wait for my principal to come back from vacation to have one meeting, one, one last meeting with her and before I came out officially. So the, all this took place on Friday, which means, and, and my principal wasn't, wasn't coming back until Monday. So I had to wait the entire weekend on top of which I had agreed to play for the final Sunday uh, because it was last minute. So I played for my last church service and the Did only they thing say I could, anything about that being your last Sunday no, or anything? I had asked them not to. Yeah. Okay. And um, it was pretty emotional. Just a lot of inner turmoil going on throughout the whole service, and because I knew that like this was the end of some type of error with me. What was very telling to me is that when I walked out of the church doors, making my way to my car, I I felt just and and I as I. Um, as I went through the the service itself, I just became began to feel very claustrophobic. Like I just felt like that sweater was just mm-hmm. getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And by the time I made it to my car, I had already unbuttoned my shirt and I had it off. I had a t-shirt on and mm-hmm. I mean, my tie was off. Like I, I just couldn't, it was just like this relief that I, that I, that I didn't know I needed until that moment throughout that entire week, weekend, I was feeling physical pain. Like I could not wait any longer to come out and I knew I had to wait, but, and it just amazed. It's amazing to me that on July 2nd, I, I didn't even think I would be coming out. It was the furthest thing from my mind. And then here I am 
just a few days later and I couldn't wait any longer to come out to where I was in like physical pain waiting. And uh, finally, Monday came around, had the meeting with the principal. That meeting went well. We came up with a couple of what to do if this happened happens type things if a, if a student mentions it because the the um, understanding was this was not a conversation I would be having with students and uh, but what what to do if one of them brings it up or anything like a thing like that what was interesting is neither one of them knew that I'd already posted it but I had it set to um, me only to where I could see it not public so I just I wanted to just get through the meeting and then she said so when are you going to hit when are you going to post it? And I told her the second that I get into my car after this meeting. And I did. I got into the car. I went and changed the setting to me only to public. And then, I mean, the rest is history. Um, lots of comments, lots of likes. And and I believe you me, I was looking at that like list a lot. <laughs> like I, I loved it. I clicked the heart. I just want to point that okay. out. <laughs> Good. So, yeah. Well, the, the whole list, the hearts, the likes, the the whole care Thing was not in existence at that time, but um, read through is. the comments many times. Nate, I know you said that you were kind of keeping tabs on the comments. My brother Stephen was as well, and you know, at the time, it's exactly what I what I needed. I had made a decision that I wasn't going to respond to anybody's comments. I wasn't in in addition to Facebook comments. I received uh, text messages and phone calls. <sighs> Now I know why I receive text messages and phone calls. I received them from church staff who offered their love, but were afraid to to put that do, on do Facebook. it publicly. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's fine. That that's a whole other can. But um, is, it, is it is it fine? Oh. I'll say I'll say this. It was what I needed at the time. But when I look back at many of the comments, it was code language. Like a like a love the what is it hate the sin love the center hate the sin love the center we still love you Cliff this doesn't change um, just and I don't want to look too much into that because some people's intent may have been very pure maybe that's just all they knew what to say but um, I I know for a fact that many of the people who commented. Uh, their their love and support, they do believe that homosexuality is immoral and they still go to churches that advance that teaching. So at the time, that was good enough for me. Um, that is no longer good enough for me to a certain extent. And I, I, the, in the when I initially came out on Facebook, I thought what would happen is I would just kind of, okay, here it is, and I'm going to be quiet about it especially in the classroom, which I still kind of am, but that was the, that was the main, that was probably the main fear, um, all along is that of my students finding out that I was gay. Cause I was afraid that they would look at me different. I mean, there's a lot of things I was afraid of, but that was probably the main thing. So I just thought that I would put it out there and then I would just kind of in a way hide again. Um, I should have known just based on my personality, um, <laughs> that, that probably would not be the case. And I remember in, in kind of the weeks that followed reading my Bible over again, I'd read it many times and I've certainly studied certain, and I was well aware of all the passages that spoke out against homosexuality. So that was nothing new to me. Um, but I, I started to read the Bible and what I 
what I discovered is that my lens had changed. The lens that I had always read the Bible before was through this filter of needing to hide who I was and just which caused me to maybe not even look at scripture in an honest way, whatever the case may be. I discovered as I was reading it that it just seemed different to me. And one of the things that first caught my eye was in, in, a, in a way that it had never caught my eye before was in reading the, the story of Noah having too much to drink and um, the whole curse of Ham or the curse of Canaan. And as part of that curse, God or Noah, God through Noah, says that the ancestors of Canaan would be enslaved. And when I read that, I just had this thought like, wait a second, enslaved? Like, this is the first time we encounter slavery in the Bible. And we understand slavery to be this institution. And here it's introduced as a part of a curse to a group of people. And that's in Genesis 9. You turn the page to Genesis 10 and you see where those descendants ended up. That is when I began pulling on a big time thread and I ended up studying, like I, I Googled the Bible, the Bible and slavery. And what I discovered, what popped up was blog after blog, after blog, after blog, video after video, just constantly of Christian evangelical, biblical apologists explaining that the slavery found in the old Testament is different from the slavery that we had in America, which Unfortunately, when you take an honest reading of the scripture, it's not. It's it's the exact same type of slavery. And it, long story short, um, today I can honestly say that I look at the the Bible in a completely different lens. And and I'll and I'll keep this very short and sweet. Can I use the Bible to to prove that homosexuality is immoral? Sure, I, I can I can do that. There's a handful of scriptures that suggests that. But I can also use the Bible to prove that God endorsed slavery, including chattel slavery, which is the the main type of slavery we saw in America. I could use the Bible to teach that God um, endorsed racism um, and genocide and human sex trafficking uh, and women's oppression and an element of um, anti-Semitism. I mean, a host of things. And what... It just, it's very clear to me that people pick and choose based on their comfort level, based on their indoctrination, how they've been taught to view God and the Bible and the church and their society and their world. And normally, I probably wouldn't have a problem with it. I mean, to each his own. If your faith guides you in a certain way, if it helps you, that's fine. But if there are things about your faith that are causing other people harm, and in my case, in my situation, it's causing millions of children, teens, and adults forced into a closet of self-hatred and shame, then I don't mind channeling that confrontational part of my personality and challenging you on that. And and, and that's kind of where I am. So I think it's very safe to say, though I, I do think that mentally I'm in a good place, I'm still very angry and I'm kind of riding this wave of anger. Because one thing that I began to also realize and uncover through all of this I would see um, out gay people, whether they're in the church or not or whatever, who have a relationship with the church, 
they would respond in a way that don't don't judge me for being gay. Like we're all sinners. And I have a problem with that because in in saying don't judge me, we're all sinners. Don't judge me for being gay, we're all sinners. It's like they're conceding that a part of their identity is sinful and abominable. And you you hear all kinds of people championing gay marriage and gay rights and and you hear that that narrative and you hear the other narrative about you shouldn't be judging people and things like that. And it dawned on me that those conversations are important, but I want to get to the root of what's causing um, this these hates. And, and that is the teaching itself. The teaching that homosexuality is immoral is the root cause of a host of different evils. And so that's where I find myself today. It's not enough to champion gay rights and gay marriage and I want to get to the heart of, of the issue. And, and I, I think that that's the teaching itself. And I, and I, I think that I'll be fighting that teaching until, until my last breath. And, and the question I have to ask myself is where's the balance between fighting for that cause and, and letting yourself move on and, and have a new life and, live freely and not be weighed down and whatnot. So that's a daily conversation that I have with myself and um, hopefully I'll get better at navigating between the two. And I know, you know, Nate kind of holds me accountable with that. And, but yeah. Yeah. Have you been enjoying freedom? I mean, I would hope that it like was Rachel Maddow right with her quote, I guess. Oh, that's a, yeah. You know, it's, it's shockingly, yeah, I mean, I, I, I it, for anybody listening to this today who may be closeted, and I, I, I can only hope that, that some, at least one person is, just know that that is true. And I did not believe it at the time. And you really don't w- realize how weighed down you are until you take that weight off and you stop hiding. And, and you, you just start to see your life and your world, um, and even your faith in just a whole new light. Um, so yeah, Megan, to answer that question, yes, she was, she was spot on. And I'll also say this, circling back to something I said at the very beginning, um, I don't like to talk about having an, uh, like not the best relationship with my parents, um, because there's a school of thought out there that that is what led to my homosexuality is a bad relationship with my parents. And I want to also say to anybody listening who has been taught that that is, that's a lie. That is a lie. I, from the pit of hell, I think that relationship with parents can have an impact on certainly on a, on a child's psyche and the way that they view relationships and, and quite possibly even the way that they view sex. Um, I'm definitely not arguing that, but I don't think it has anything to do with orientation, sexual orientation. And I think that that is a lie. And there's plenty of evidence that that is just simply that that argument doesn't hold up. Number one, there are plenty of of young men and women who have perfectly healthy relationship uh, relationships with their parents who who are gay. There are people who don't have good relationships with their parents who are not gay. Um, it is well proven among um, scientists that homosexuality exists in 
the animal community. How do you explain that? There's also, as we all know, there's the sense that there's a there's a narrative in the evangelical community now that okay maybe you were born gay, but it doesn't mean that you should act out on it. I will I will say first of all, that is not the way young children and teens view the world. If you tell them that uh, that that is abominable, what that means to them is that they are abominable, and in the end, you're really asking somebody to deny a part of their humanity, much like. Black people were expected to deny a part of, of their humanity, and women for a long time were expected to deny a part of their humanity. It, it's just no different. So there's a lot of narrative out there, and what I what I would encourage those listening, take a second look at the narrative that you've been taught as it relates to this issue or any issue. Take a look at it. Is it harming people? Because that's a good sign that you need to rethink that particular tenet, uh, that teaching, if it's harming somebody, review it and, and, and look for a better way. I guess one thing we could, we could talk, we could wrap up here with, uh, we've, we've heard your journey, but where are you now? Because I don't think you've really said that. And I I honestly can't, I don't know where you are at this moment right (laughs) now, even though, you know, we talk a ton, I don't know where. So, so, is there a label you wear now? How do you define yourself? Um, just in, in terms of your faith, where did that end up? Obviously, you're out now. Uh, yeah. You're free of that. So what happened when you started living this life? Right. Um, first of all, I enjoy the freedom of not having to be labeled, I guess. Uh, there's some freedom there. I think if you start calling yourself like a Christian or a Baptist or, or whatever the case may be, if you label yourself, then in some way you are adjusting your lens to where you have to look at everything through that lens, and that could cause you to not look at things through, a, through an accurate way. So I definitely don't want to label. I will say my view on the Bible has definitely changed for reasons that I've already mentioned. As far as my relationship with God... I would definitely say my relationship with God for for forever was viewed through a a Christian lens, and more specifically, a an evangelical fundamentalist biblical uh, lens. And it's a lot different now. I'm a student of music, and music in and of itself causes me, compels me to believe that this could not have been an accident. That there has to have been some type of creator who kind of put that together. Um, And I find peace in that, and I don't have a problem with that. I do have a problem with anybody having the audacity to say that the only way you can have a relationship with God is by doing this or believing this. I think that even though I believed in that way for the longest time, I now see just the folly in that. It's just... It's, um, I don't know. I don't know how anybody could, could have, could look at the world that we live in and be able to utter those words and fully believe what they're saying. You know, what's interesting is like in your earlier story about your childhood, you said that music was like the first place that you found acceptance and like, that's still kind of. Yeah, a part of your yeah. you know music has really like um, 
it has just been kind of, it's been a friend as, and, and I mean, I, I, my, my siblings used to tease me. Why don't you go on a date with your keyboard? Like, I, <laughs> I mean, that is how nerdy I approached music. That's how often I practiced. When I began learning uh, piano, I went to the local library and I checked out music books and we had an encyclopedia set. I pulled out the M encyclopedia, turned it to music, and that gave me all the information that I needed. <laughs> I was self-taught, something that I took very seriously. I just found peace in it. It was a way to escape you know, everything that I was going through personally. And it's just kind of always been there for me. And when you get into like the theory of it, that that's what causes me to, a a person can look at it in different ways. They could look at the theory of music and be like, well, it's mathematical. Therefore there's a way to explain it without, you know, a God, a creative God. And I look at it differently. I kind of look at it like this gift and I can't imagine it just existing on accident. So, and I'm okay with that. And and the reason why I'm okay with that is because it doesn't harm anybody and I'm okay. You know, maybe one day I'll find a church that, uh, for fellowship and for just kind of a shared experience, you know, but right now I'm still definitely unpacking and, um, what's the word? Pulling threads. I'm, (laughs) I'm still pulling threads, figuring it all out. So yeah, that's where I am. All right. Well, that was a lot. I am what I am. (laughs) <laughs> that was uh that was heavy stuff let me ask you this what was the last song you played at the church that that last day that's a good question um i played his eyes on the sparrow and um i i can still gosh damn it nate why are you asking this question because it's making <laughs> I, me emotional we're all gonna cry um no yeah his eyes on the sparrow and the way that i that I play offerings in church is basically I open up the hymnal to a song and I improvise on it. And I still remember like toward the end, like my lips started quivering and it was kind of weird because there's only three people sitting there who knew exactly what, possibly for the, the lady who was going to play piano for me the following week. I think that maybe she had been uh, told that this would be my last Sunday and they would need her to step up. So I think that maybe she knew um, and when I finished, I, I heard her say, amen. Well, Cliff, uh, you know, thanks for, thanks for sharing your journey. Um, that's, that's a lot, it's heavy. Uh, but I think it's good, um, to put everything into context and understand why we would even want to have a podcast where we talk about things like this. I think that perfectly sets the tone for what we want to do with this. And I just want to say thank you to anyone who's listened to this. Uh, we hope you tune back in next week. We're going to talk about my journey and it was very different than cliffs. Um, you'll see some common threads. (laughs) (laughs) You will see some common threads. That's true. So yeah. Any, any last thoughts from everybody? I just appreciate you sharing cliff. That was good. Well, thank you. Thank you. All right. Love you, Cliff. Oh, love you too, Nate. All right. Love you guys. See everybody next time. <laughs> love you too, Megan. Megan. Bye bye. Wait, can we do that fake laugh again, Cliff? <laughs> let's just keep it let's just keep this going. All right. That works. <laughs> hey guys, it's me again. This is Cliff. Um 
Uh, I'm recording this on a stormy, rainy day, so if you hear that in the background, you'll know why. It's it's, it's beautiful. Uh, I just wanted to thank you for uh, joining us today and for tuning in and listening to my story. Um, as I've mentioned, there are many who are dealing with issues like these and, and, and other issues. And um, if you are struggling personally with thoughts of suicide or self-harm, or if you know of somebody who is, please reach out. There are wonderful uh, resources out there. When Netflix um, posted their new documentary called Pray Away, they came up with a, uh, a website to accompany that uh, to, for people to reach out. It's www.wannatalkaboutit.com. And uh, great resources there. There's also the Trevor Project, which has a 24-hour um, hotline for those uh, in need. Just please reach out to somebody. Uh, as a community, we, we can get through this. We can get through anything. And um, if you are listening and if you have your own uh, journey that you would be interested in sharing, uh, you've, you've been pulling on your own threads of your own sweater, um, please go to our website, uh, pullingthreads.captivate.fm, and under the Listen for Free, there's a link that's called Tell Us About Your Sweater. Please feel free to, to click on that and fill out the form and, and tell us a little bit about your journey and whether you might be interested in, in joining us and sharing your own journey. Um, again, thank you guys uh, for joining and, and listening, and we hope to see you back here next week. Bye, guys.